and welcome to Station Adjacent, a podcast at the intersection of analog and digital productivity. I'm Justin Twyford, and joined as always by my friend and my co-host, Stu Lennon. Hey, Stu, how's Cyprus today? It's absolutely glorious as ever, Justin. How about Canada? How is Canada treating you today? Oh, it's uh, cool, wet, and dark to this morning. So uh, this uh, remote living stuff, uh, it's, I'm not sure yet. Summerland is not quite as it says on the tin. (laughs) It is Canada. I think you should probably expect a dose of winter in Canada. I'm no expert, but just looking at a map, it looks like it's sort of in, well, cold to really cold. That's sort of the winter scale, isn't it? Yeah, I guess I've been spoiled for the last, well, I don't know, 30 some odd years. I've lived in basically a rainforest. So it didn't get particularly cold, it didn't get particularly warm, but it did rain a lot. And up here it is uh, neither raining, though a little bit today, which is the first time in a long time, Uh, but it does get really warm summers and really cold winters. So it's it's a change, but change is always good. Uh, Speaking of change, what change do you have from your home setup based on the Apple event last week? Oh, based on the Apple event. Um, well, it was one of the, probably the best Apple events, uh, the ones that we really like. I didn't spend a cent. So, um, that was good. I think I'm current me, let's, let's say current me, um, (laughs) sort of really sees, uh, mobile computing as, as sort of, you know, thin client light. Um, so I have a MacBook air. Uh, the M1, so being a very new machine that, uh, you know, lasts forever, never gets warm, never makes a noise. Uh, it goes like thunder. I mean, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. Um, but it doesn't have much on it because my real work is, is a desktop. That that's where I really get stuff done is at my desk and I can't abide. I know, I know we differ on this, but I can't abide a laptop, you know, a big monitor with the laptop open using a different keyboard. I, I, I just can't get my, it's too messy for me. So I want a desktop that is either an all-in-one or is a, you know, little box that gets hidden under a table somewhere and nice peripherals. And there weren't any of those at the, uh, at the event. So I'm okay. I'm, I was looking and I, I saw some stuff that I really liked. I saw some direction of travel that made me very optimistic, but nothing that would, would, Convince me to open my wallet. What, what about the twife and how many laptops did you buy? Well, see, I was really good, even though I got to admit, I priced one up and it got expensive in a hurry just because my needs, I, I tend to differ perhaps a little from used to, I load everything up when I buy it, which I think you, you tend to go a little lighter on, on the specs. Yeah. On the, on the mobiles I do. Yeah. And so looking at the spec that I wanted got really, really expensive, really, really quick. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it going, okay, the first question you have to ask is, well, what would I do with this? The second question then becomes which laptop of mine would it replace? And then the third question is, can I do everything I need to on it? And at that point, my answer was no. Because 
Some of the software that I use, I use a suite of software from a company called Isotope. And Isotope is a professional level audio processing. And what that does is it allows me to do certain editing that removes background noises, it removes clicking in the voices, removes some of the extraneous breath sounds. You know, there's a whole bunch of weird things that this software can do. Mm-hmm. And if you have podcast hosts that sit in front of a fridge that likes to purr and make noise, which Stu's has been quiet today. Who would do such a thing? It's one of those things that's very, very important. There's a couple of other ways you can do it, but the clarity of this is sort of uh, industry standard for professional studios. However, it did not until recently work on Apple Silicone. Mm. They did release an upgrade to their existing product and also the next version of the product last week. And I hadn't used it until after the Apple event. And the update is wonderful, but it does take a lot more CPU power and a lot of time. And, you know, that can mean I have to have the laptop running for an hour, an hour and a half to process and strip all the the noise out on each track, especially some of the longer tracks. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, no problem. That's not something that I could do. But I was looking at the release notes for the new software, and it now supports Apple Silicon, which is scary because now I have a use case for it. <laughs> the other suite of products that they make that I still use, uh, there's, I, I won't get into all the details on it. Uh, I have the suite. It's this suite of products is as expensive as a reasonably specced new laptop. So just throwing the software away and saying, I'm just going to use a new laptop that doesn't support them is actually a challenge. It's a financial hit. True. And some of the stuff I wouldn't be able to do. You know, I think the suite of software is around 2,500 US. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a hefty spend and does factor quite widely into my calculations. But the fact that they've started supporting Apple Silicon, even though it's just through Rosetta, is very promising. So I'm going to run a couple of tests this week when I have some audio files, Stu, um, to run through it. I'm actually going to run that as a A-B test and run both machines simultaneously using the same processing on the same file to work out which is quicker and how much is quicker. Because that could be a factor for me because, well, time is money. Of course. It's not really because, you know, we're not making a lot from podcasting, but the principle is there. Time is money. Absolutely. We're nothing if not principle. I mean, I think the, I mean, the, the sort of standard wisdom around particularly Apple is that their, their release cycles sort of belong in bigger cycles. So we're now at the beginning of, you know, Apple silicone. The M1 is the first version. Now the M1 Pro and the M1 Max um, are the sort of enhanced versions. And one assumes that we're then going to move on to M2s, et cetera, et cetera, which will gradually get better uh, and will settle in. So this 
should, I imagine, judging by previous performance, this should be the sort of architecture for the next 10 years. And all of the software will be built for that and it will start working. So for particularly, I think audio uh, in particularly is always best to sort of hang back a little bit, isn't it, on, on upgrades. Yeah, audio and video. If you're running a content production machine, I, I really do recommend people not to be on the bleeding edge. I just recently upgraded to Big Sur on this because I don't want to be, I don't want to have that as no option for me at a year down the road from implementation. I think I'm safe to actually put it on there, mm. which tells you something about my faith in Apple's ability to break third-party software. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's not high on their list of priorities, is it? It's like, deal with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm still very tempted. I've kind of deferred the decision for now. Uh, the laptop that I was looking at without even the crazy, crazy SSD that I'd really want to get, the absolute minimum would be a two terabyte. Mm -hmm. And that came in at about 5,400 Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, we're at a stage now, I mean, I, I've, for once, there's a reasonable level of logic that I don't think, I mean, you can correct me, but I don't think I'm self-justifying here, but when I buy my next desktop, so I'm going to, that's for sure, I've got one now, which is, I, I call it my placeholder. So it's a Mac mini, it's M1, so it has all of the advantages of that, but it's, it's low end. It's still to be honest, perfectly adequate for what I need. But I'm aware that it will age quite quickly. Um, there's not a huge amount of SSD there. There's um, very little sort of usable memory. Um, and it does occasionally bump up against that, particularly if I'm running anything from Microsoft. <laughs> um, and I get the, get the little message saying, you know, your, uh, your RAM is filling up. What I'm looking for in my desktop I'm pretty straightforward. I think I'm not very demanding. I don't do things that are terribly demanding. So the idea of buying a sort of Mac pro, which will doubtless be, you know, $30,000 and, and do more things that I could ever dream of. It's just silly. Sure. I'd like to have one, but I think I would buy it and then spend every day for the rest of my life going, why did I buy that? Because I just simply don't stretch it. But what I do want is a really nice screen. I appreciate it. I'm Speaking to a man who's quite fond of a screen himself, mm -hmm. given the world that we live in, I want a proper webcam and I want it built in and I want it to look nice and I want it to be Apple. And there's this really weird thing going on, which I believe is all to do with supply constraints, where the camera on, let's say, an iPad Pro, which is a kind of laptop, I guess, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. is incredible and they've got center stage on it and the same as they've got on the phones. It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of kit. I think it's 12 megapixel. Now the, uh, the, the front facing camera or back facing camera, depending on which way you look at it. Mm -hmm. And then on the max, you get a 1080, mm -hmm. which is, you know, was probably cutting edge in about 2014, 2015, maybe. Uh, it's it's simply not good enough. Now, two years ago, it would have been fine because uh, I, like everyone else, thought Zoom was a bit of a, you know, it's a bit dodgy. Who wasn't? Nobody's going to use that sort of nonsense for business. Oops. 
But now, if I'm buying a top-end machine, and let's face it, I'm going to buy a machine that I hope is going to do everything that I would want it to do for several years, I expect it to have a really good camera. And right now, they don't have that. But I think the next iMac might. I have a solution for you, Stu. And what's that? Well, it's, I'm going to set your money on fire. It's good. The XDR that I have mm-hmm. has a separate Logitech 4K video camera that you can buy for it, designed specifically for this monitor. It, it's a magnetic clip on the top. It's, it's just lovely. That is my fallback. I'll be honest, mm. because what, what I'm hoping for, um, we're off on, on a standard Apple tangent here, but what I'm hoping for is that let's say the middle of next year, it could be this time next year, but I, th- I think it might be earlier. There will be on the market, there will be a new Mac mini super tough. So call it a pro Mac mini, if you will, there will be, uh, a larger iMac. So again, might be the iMac pro. That seems to be the sort of general sort of direction of travel is call everything pro and $2,000 on the price. Pro Max and make it even bigger. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's rumored to be a 30 inch screen, which is great. That's, that's kind of where I'm looking to go. Um, and then there's the current iMac, which is the sort of baby iMac, uh, which is, I think a 20, 23, 24, 24 inch screen, I think 24 inches, a new one. Yeah. Um, which is a little bit small. I've kind of got that now I've got an LG. Um, in front of me at the moment, which is around about that size. And I find I probably want two of those. Um, I, th- I think I'd rather have one bigger one, but hey, I'm hoping then that that's going to be my sort of choice. I'm going to be able to look at that and go, okay, what if I got a souped up Mac mini with a really nice display? HDR, you say? Hmm. You know, that type of thing. I prefer maybe a little step down from the HDR. That's slightly overkill for my, for my needs, but Hey, we'll see. Um, or the big iMac or the small iMac. If there's a performance jump, I'm a little bit concerned about the, you know, uh, the memory on those. And I can make a sensible reason decision. And what I'd really like is for them to have a built in, you know, swish camera, because I know I can use my iPhone. I can put it up on a tripod or on a, a, a boom arm and use camo and all of that stuff. Yeah, I know all that, but I'm, I'm what I thought was the dream Apple consumer, which is, you know, give me something that's really, really pretty that I don't have to actually touch or attach anything to. And I, you can set my money on fire. I, I, I thought that was what they wanted. Uh, but instead I'm sitting here with my, you know, my LG monitor for some reason, which is about as far from the Apple aesthetic as you'd hope to go. Um, and you know, it's got a big sort of Logitech thing sitting on the top of it, which looks a little bit like a ray gun. I mean, it's just a bit weird. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that at some point next year, I'll be able to make a reasonable decision and get some brand new shiny things. I have to admit, I was looking at these new laptops and seeing that they could power three of the monitors that I have. <laughs> yeah, you saw that in the video. We all chuckled a little bit. Oh, look, there's twenty thousand dollars worth of screens. Exactly. It's just uh, absolutely amazing. But I, I got to tell you, the the screen, Apple seems to be sort of doubling down on it. They they are using this as a showcase. 
even uh, the guy, A.G. Cook, uh, the guy at the first uh, intro, the musical guy yeah. on the presentation. Uh, he's sitting there in his garage, which I thought was funny, a great callback to GarageBand. And he's got his little laptop with the whole XDR sitting in front of it in his garage, which I just thought was really funny. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when the, the 30 inch comes out, uh, the iMac Pro, if you like, I, I think it's going to look a lot like an HDR. Mm. Anyway, we'll stop spending money. Yes, let's do that. We've actually made it through this one without spending any money, Stu. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it feels good. Certainly, certainly my bank manager will be delighted. Mm. Though I do reserve the right to change that at any point over the next couple of months when I rethink this. Oh, of course. And as listeners should note, the fact that I said, no, no, I don't like using laptops as my main machine is no barrier at all to me using a laptop as my main machine. <laughs> so uh, what's your tool of the week this week, Stu? Uh, well, a strange one, really, or an obvious one, or an infuriating one, I'm not quite sure. It was a throwaway comment. Mm. I was on a call, um, a sort of mastermind call, I guess you would call it, and uh, one of my uh, one of my guys was saying, oh, you should probably look at a book called At Your Best by, I think it's Kerry, Kerry Newhoff, uh, with a, a, an extraordinary spelling of his name. I assume there must be some South African in there somewhere or some Dutch. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the book is called At Your Best. I've not read it, but the, the, the premise of the book appears to be that you have green time, yellow, or amber, as we might say in in the UK and red time, green time being time that you're full of energy, motivation, willpower, creativity, and red time where you're pretty much useless. And we've discussed that before where, um, you know, I'm very much a morning uh, alert. So I'm full of optimism in the morning, quite creative, can get stuff done. And Come sort of evening time, I, I think I might be solar powered. I start sort of powering down as the sun goes down, and and the period leading up to that is is that amber stroke yellow area where I can do stuff, but not stuff that requires a lot of decision making or creativity. And the premise of the book is do the important stuff in your green time, which isn't earth shattering, really. I know that, and yet. Something about him saying it made me think, so why do I get up in the morning and take the dogs out? Much though I love taking the dogs out, and it's wonderful to be out in nature early in the morning. Could I not take the dogs out, you know, perhaps during a yellow time or a red time where I'm not really up to, to doing much work-wise and use that green time to work? So I did this morning. Ooh. I I'm negotiated with the dogs. I was going to say, how did their um, bowels handle this discussion? They're pretty laid back about the whole thing. We, we've got a really big yard, and so they're, they're kind of hybrids. You know, they don't always do everything they need to do on their walk. They make use of the yard, and mm. I spend a lot of time with plastic bags on my hand, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So familiar with that one. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like glamour of dog ownership. But they're pretty cool about it, particularly as the weather is changing here. So... They're, they're looking at me in the morning now going, oh, it's a bit cold. I mean, by any objective measure, it's not cold, but comparatively it is. So they're quite relaxed about the whole thing. 
like like most dogs, you know, they're like, okay, you know, as long as I can hang out with you, I don't mind what we do. That's that's pretty much my my dog's view of life. So I worked. Uh, I was at my desk, um, sort of Twyford esque sort of time. I think I was down here for seven o'clock or something, just getting things done and really flying through my day and had a lot of stuff done. And then as I felt myself begin to flag uh, around lunchtime, I took the dogs out and started doing some sort of domestic chores. And yeah, just a whole lot more productive by that really, really simple rethink of, of how I do things. Interesting. What about you? And you just cost me 30, 33 bucks, I think it is, to buy that from Amazon, which will be here on Sunday. Wow. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm I'm hoping there's more to the book than what you just said. Otherwise, that was a waste of money. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I had a quick look at the website where there's, um, you know, you can sign up for workshops and all sorts. But what about you? What has been your sort of tool of the week? Well, I, a few weeks ago, you talked about, I can't remember the term you used for it, where you were just in basically firefighting mode. Mm. And I had a week of that. You know, as I, I talked about last week, my wife is undergoing uh, chemotherapy at the moment. The nearest hospital to us is in the next city down. And that creates a, a lot of challenges because my wife is really, with her treatments, not capable of safely driving back and forth. So I'm, I'm playing Mr. Uber. And last week, uh, she had an oncologist appointment. She had treatments for chemo. Then she had an MRI just to check that everything's going well. And I can't sit at the hospital. So basically I Uber her in, I come back home. I wait for her text uh, an hour, two hours, three hours later saying, come pick me up. And I do that whole cycle over again, which takes a big chunk out of, out of my day, out of my week. And so I ended up having to work all weekend to catch up on some deadlines. And what I did was I threw away all my planning. I knew I had these deadlines. I knew I had this task. I didn't take any time for about four or five days to do any planning. I, my poor little analog card. Well, I saved some money on that because I didn't use my daily card. <laughs> I was just in pure firefighting mode. And as much as I love to have the organization of going through and figuring out what I'm going to do. Sometimes when the stuff hits the fan, just not putting that pressure on yourself to look at a list and feel bad for all the other stuff you're not getting to that you probably should be doing, but just focusing on the one single thing was incredibly freeing. And I'm not sure it's kind of a weird feeling. I didn't get a lot else done, but I got, sort of the catch-up done on the deadlines. I made the deadlines that I needed to do. And it was a very interesting way of just really focusing my time. Single-focused, um, you know, probably I wouldn't have been nice to talk to because I was very <laughs> single-focused, stay out of my way. Uh, focus mode, if I had such a thing, would be on. But it was, a, it was an interesting way to look at it if you have a deadline. You know, rather than just allocating your time, just saying, okay, this is my only priority, which Stu has told me before, there is no priorities. This is the priority, the one, the singular. I use that and it felt good, surprisingly good. 
Yeah, it's. Um, I think I called it the "I'm not here to make friends" mode. Aha, uh-huh, that's the one where you just, um, uh, you know, become so task oriented that that relationship stuff can can go by the wayside. And I think I think you're right. It's there are times when that's what life demands, and there's very little that we can do about that. You just have to buckle up and get into it. The the thing I would say is, you know, it's not sustainable long term. You have to, you know, sort of find a way to step back, be kind to yourself and say, okay, I, I need a, a little bit of time here to, to regather, you know, to, for, in all sorts of ways. I was thinking about that when you were talking about the green, amber and red zones. And I thought, oh, second half of my week is all red this week. Mm. It's, it's been, a, been a bit of a slog, but again, you know, you, you kind of pick your tasks that you need to do. I've got some admin stuff done before I sort of tackle the next big project, really kind of take a moment to recoup, recapture this weekend. Uh, it's going to be a very quiet one for me. And uh, the next week, it'll be all green. All buttons are green, Stu. It's, it's good for a go. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I think I said last week, you know, I, I took pretty much a day just to, to go, whoa, hang on, I need to, to get everything back in order. And um, you know, that that's paid off for me this week. So I've been much more productive this week. I've had a lot more energy. And, you know, we have ebbs and flows. That's the reality of stuff. And as you say, sometimes deadlines demand and uh, you, we can't ignore deadlines. I'm afraid that's just the way of the world. I'd like to, but uh, it never happens. <laughs> All right, Stu, what are you writing with this week? This looks interesting. Oh, what am I writing with? Um, it's a lovely pen. It's one of my favorite pens. Um, it's, uh, to get the French styling, it's the Stylo Plus Momblon Héritage Collection Rouge et Noir Special Edition. It's a medium nib. It's a very thin pen. Um, I think Justin will probably put a link into the, into the show notes. Uh, it's a very, I suppose in the old days you would say it was a lady's pen. It's sort of straight all the way. There's no cigar sort of element to it. It's just straight. There's no um, turning at all. And there's a lovely clip. The clip is a snake, um, a sort of jeweled snake. Classic Mont Blanc, but very fine. I use a medium nib on mine. Um, they're, they're expensive. I mean, what Mont Blanc isn't expensive, but I bought this for myself. In, I'm going to guess it was probably about 2015, not long after I'd sold the business. So mm-hmm. this was kind of a gift to myself. Uh, I got the one that is black. There's a sort of orange one as well. And I kind of wish I'd bought that one too, but I didn't. See, you could have matched your brand new HomePods with that uh, coral car- color. Exactly. Of course I could. And they would continue to ignore me from a, from a distance. But yeah, the... This is the only Mont Blanc I own that has quite a small ink capacity. So uh, if you fill up a big one, a big Mont Blanc, then you're stuck with it for you know weeks. Uh, this one will will probably need refilling in a few days, I would say. But it, I mean, it's a beautiful writer. The Mont Blanc's a lovely pen. Um, I know people talk about the price and all that, but uh, they are very, very well-made pens. I've got to admit, Mont Blanc was one of the reasons I got back into fountain pens, having avoided sort of the specialty market that we're we're in i was kind of going to the the local stores the stationery stores the office supply stores you know back in the day and i would dabble in and out of fountain pens 
because I, gr- I grew up with fountain pens. But then, you know, you try one and it was, well, it was crap. You know, you, you spend any money for a Schaefer off the shelf in, in a store and it's probably not going to give you a great writing experience. And I tra- treated myself to a Mont Blanc and the nib on it, the writing experience was exactly what I was looking for. And that's what led me down the deep, dark rabbit hole of stationery and got me right back into it because the Mont Blanc was, was so lovely to write with. And I've got a few of them. Every one of them is just a dream. The nibs are wonderful. Yeah, they come at a premium price, but as I'm going to talk about when we get to my pen, I'll, I'll pay the premium, I think, because sometimes the quality is worth it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Mont Blanc are a bit similar to sort of watches. Uh, they, they tend to, to go up and rather than down, to be honest, if you buy limited editions. They also do some lovely watches as well. Yes, very true. So what are you using? What's your pen and ink of the week? Well, what have I been trying to use, I think might be the question for me. So I started this week with a thrift shop find, a secondhand shop in town is going out of business. My wife found out about it on Facebook and we happened to be driving past. So we went in and there was a little Schaefer Imperial. I had no idea what it was. It was just a little Schaefer, looked in good condition. It's an aromatic sack filler. The sack seemed soft. It was in a case, probably looks like it's never actually been inked up. Uh, very, very good condition. I did some research. It's a Schaefer Imperial from 1995. Picked it up. It was a jaw-dropping $10. And because they were going out of business, they gave me 50% off. Wow. Which is very, very inexpensive, and I couldn't pass it up. I've inked it up. It is a lovely writer. The wide nib, though. Oh, my goodness. It has to be a very, very European thick medium or perhaps a bold it is so wide for me that it's very hard for me to use on a daily basis. Proper, proper pen at last, Twyford. Stick with it. Proper pen at life. Yes. <laughs> so, well, I've, I've got ink in it still. It's on my desk, so I'll, I'll, I've been playing with it. But um, my new pen came in. Uh, I was so impressed with Esther Brooks' customer service the other week that we talked about that I fell in love with their new Novo Blue Esther Brook that they have, the Esty, that they've just released. And so I ordered one from, well, I would say a local shop. It's only about 3,000 miles away. Uh, But it's a Canadian shop that I support. Uh, One of the few that actually carries such things and does mail order. That way I don't have to deal with all those customs things that Stu knows all about. Uh (laughs) Love the pen. Love the color. I took it out of the box and my wife said, oh, that's a pen I'd like to have too. Which I thought is, my wife is as far away from stationary as you could possibly get not interested at all it is absolutely gorgeous but it is the i was gonna say the worst nib but if i'm really honest the second worst nib i've ever seen on a new pen it is horrible and i didn't actually expect it Uh, one of the problems that i've got you know i moved i might have whined about this before Stu. i packed up my really nice loop and i have no idea where it is so I just inked the pen and went to write with it. And it was like writing with a knife. Oh. 
the times were so badly misaligned that oh, it was it was scratchy is an understatement like it was literally scraping into the paper to the point that you couldn't write with it, it took me well it took me about half an hour to find a backup loop that i had around which is one of the cheaper poor quality amazon specials but i must have played with that three or four times over the course of a day uh, got ink everywhere because of course it was inked up and finally got it somewhat lined up but now it is the thickest extra fine that i've ever had so uh, disappointed in the nip on, nib on this one I, I know they just buy them i think they're yovo nibs but um sometimes these steel nibs just kill you this is one of those yeah i mean probably it's something that can be fixed but it's just annoying isn't it yeah it's it's fixed now i've align the tines i've there's a whole process i go through i've taken some sanding paper to it and smoothed everything out so it does write sure but it, sh it shouldn't be writing thickly should it not if you've taken a fine nib. no it's uh, you know just with the way that it's been it's been dealt with it is now much thicker than it's it's much thicker than a fine if i compare it to anything else i've got it is one of the thicker fine pens that i use so a little disappointed, but I tell you what, it is gorgeous. And it comes, the new Novo Blue comes with this beautiful little notebook as well. So absolutely lovely color. I'm just disappointed with the nib. Oh, dear. Never mind. All right. I, I'm pretty sorry for you. Now. I mean, you. then again, you've got your Schaefer Imperial that's, you know, sort of a, a, a bargain bucket. Um, and then, yeah. The things have evened themselves out with the, the slightly ropey but yeah, yeah you win some, you lose some. Mm -hmm. I may actually look into replacing that nib, which always hurts when you've got to do that in a brand new pen. But hey, I'll have a conversation with Estabrook when I send in the other pen. Mm, for sure. All right, let's get into our topics, Stu. I want to talk about negotiation because we've been talking the last couple of weeks about relationships and people and how to have a good argument. One of the things that does come up in order to be productive is a good negotiation. And I'm figuring that you having sold off a not insubstantial company, probably know a thing or two about negotiation. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that and see if we had any tips between the two of us that we could recommend a discussion a ways to think about negotiating you know even if it's something as simple in productivity as i want to block off my mornings my green time so that nobody interrupts me that may be a negotiation you have to have within your your office within your management structure there's lots of places that negotiation comes in and i thought with our collective experience too we might know a thing or two, or have some ideas at least. Well, for sure. I mean, I think negotiation, it's, uh, it's a bit like sales. You, you get people who say, oh, I, 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 don't, I don't do sales. I can't do sales. No, 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 no. I can do account management. I can be an accountant. I can do operation, but I can't do sales. And then you go, well, are you married? And they, and they go, yes. Well, you sold yourself once, didn't you? So, I mean, it's um, negotiation. 
happens all the time. Um, again, if you're married, <laughs> your life is one perpetual negotiation, or maybe that's just me. Um, I'm not sure negotiation is the right word. <laughs> well, Compliance seems to be a little bit better around here, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> Indeed. I think there's, there's elements of that in all negotiation too. The, the business that I, that I came through that I, I think we've touched on before, you know, I came through counters, um, foreign exchange counters. So, uh, a lot of people, um, particularly Brazilians <laughs> would, would come to the counter and they would negotiate their rate. So they would say, what's the rate? I would tell them, they would say, oh no, you can do better than that. And we'd get into good old fashioned face-to-face haggling. And that's, <laughs> that's where I, that's where I learned, uh, the, the basis of negotiation. And then as you quite rightly surmise, the most important negotiation I've been involved in was the sale of the business where, um, we, we sort of agreed a principle that we were going to sell to this big American corporate. And we were talking to people that we knew and that we'd been working with for, for several years. But the minute that that principle was established, it was okay. They are stepping back and stepping aside and an airplane is coming and bringing negotiators. Um, you know, the American corporate guys who this was all they do is negotiate. And that was quite intimidating. I have to be honest. It was like, oh, wow, what are these guys going to do? And, uh, in fairness, you know, they, they, the, the lead negotiator was a very nice fellow. Um, we had a lot of great, great conversations. Um, I think he probably the smartest man I've ever met, which again was a little bit intimidating because you're thinking, hmm. I'm going up against this guy because there is a sort of belief that we all have that negotiation is, a uh, is in some way confrontational. I suppose coming through that process, what, what I learned <laughs> was that, that negotiations are a lot easier than you might imagine. Um, if you, if you follow some simple procedures and principles and, <laughs> and for me, the most important thing about negotiation, and this isn't in any training that you'll ever do anywhere, um, is be authentic. Um, I, I've constantly negotiated with people. And when I say with, I mean, against, if you like, who I, I feel they're playing a part. They're trying to be tough or, you know, people do things like, okay, well, I want 10%. So I'm going to ask for 20 and then he can knock me and, you know, playing all sorts of games like that. And, and, and that's pretty tiresome because the, the key to, to, to negotiating effectively is one, to do your research and, and two, to, to be as honest as you can be. You don't need to tip your hand clearly, but being authentic about what it is you're looking for, what things you are able to, to, you know, give and take on and what things you're not, your, your red lines as they're called. Um, and the you mentioned a, a a brilliant phrase um what is it batna best alternative to a negotiated agreement mm-hmm. that was from a course that i took when i was doing my mba and it it's a silly little phrase that stays with you if you know what your best alternative to a negotiated agreement is basically that's your walk away limit it gives you an amazing freedom in a negotiation. It gives you power. It gives you the ability to be creative 
because you know at any point that that's your walk away and you go into that before you start any negotiation. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to me again, that, that harks back to the authenticity and by authenticity in this instance, what I mean is that when we were selling the business or looking to sell a business, we had to sit down and say, what if the buyer thinks that the business is worth half what we think it's worth and won't go any higher than that? Will we sell? Or will we, as you say, say, actually, we can run this business. We can continue to make money from it. And, you know, we can reassess in two years, three years, four years, five years, whatever it is, you know, so sort of establish what our, our pattern is. Um, that's, as you say, very empowering, but it requires you to be very, very honest because I know that, um, I wrote an example where, um, a member of staff has come to me. And it's, it's review time. I'm sure this, you know, everybody listening to this is, I've never heard of this, <laughs> has been through this particular thing. And, you know, you've sat down as an employee, you've had a, you've had a great year and you think that you should get, I don't know, a 10% pay rise. Um, but you acknowledge that, you know, business is business. Things are a little bit hard. Okay. So if you got 5%, that would be not great, but you would stand for it. If you don't get 5%, you know what? You're going to walk away. You're going to go down the street and work for someone else. And I've, I've lost count to the amount of employees who come into a negotiation with that approach, which is fine. That's great. Unless I'm in a place where I'm saying, okay, I'm going to freeze salaries, or I might give a couple of raises and then fire some other people because that's where the business is. That's the reality of the economics of the business. And Generally speaking, I say my, the key to my negotiations is about authenticity. So I tell people and I will say to them, look, I'll be honest about their performance, where I think they've been good, where I think they can get better. If I'm in a position to give a bonus or a pay rise, then I will. And if I'm not, then I won't. And watching people unpack their best alternative to negotiated agreement in front of me, where they're going, Okay, well, I mean, if I don't get 5%, then I think I'm going to go down the street. And I go, well, that would be really, really sad, but, you know, I understand. Mm -hmm. At that point, people go, no, 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 hang on. I didn't really mean that I was going to walk down the street. I mean, um, and they start backtracking. And they've lost all that power right there in any negotiation, even if, even if it wasn't a friendly negotiation like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's what happens is that people have been inauthentic with themselves when they've said, well, if I don't get 5%, then I'm going to walk away. Walking away is a huge thing to do for any of us. Um, walking away from a deal, walking away from a job, it, it, it happens and it should happen, but you need to be really certain in your heart of hearts, what will need to happen. And the thing I would say is you walk into a salary negotiation, you never, ever, ever walk away saying, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the company. You go away and think for sure, go away, think, you know, actually that's less than I feel I deserve and then decide to leave. That's fine. But don't put, don't add stress to a negotiation. Don't make it sort of larger than life. This is life and death. It's not. Um, and 
the other one, I suppose the, the, the big thing that my business partner, when we were planning our negotiation strategy, um, he was sitting there going, well, they will want this and they will want that. And then they're going to try and do this and they're going to try and do that. And I said, what if they're not? Oh. And he went, what do you mean? I said, well, we're making assumptions about, you know, the other side of the table and then building a strategy upon assumptions. And if those assumptions are wrong, <laughs> our strategy is wrong. And we're, we're in a place where we're floundering. We're, no, we're not looking great. So ultimately I convinced them. I said, don't worry about what you think they want. Let's be straightforward about what we want. And let's have worked out what we will be prepared to sacrifice because there's always give and take, um, what things we'd be willing to give up. Um, but don't worry about what you think they want. They've got a whole team over there working out what they want. Let them get on with that. Let's look after what we do. And again, this goes against what a lot of people will tell you in negotiations. A lot of people will say that the key is to work out what the other side wants. And I agree with research. I agree with looking in to what the company has done in other situations, what the other side has done in similar situations, what appears to be their sort of global strategy, if you like. But just don't assume anything. <laughs> I, I'm completely in agreement there. One of the things that I've learned to do is to get as much information on the table and to go from a low trust negotiation to a high trust negotiation mm. where, you know, it, it is a little tough to divulge a little bit of what your needs are because you feel vulnerable. Yep. But if you can bring that around to a high trust, and again, knowing what the alternative is, I'm going to walk away at this point you can expand the pie. Let's go back to your staff member coming in. They want 5%, otherwise they're going to walk away. Money is not everything. For sure. Can we look at other ways to expand the pie that we're, we're working on? I can't give you money, but perhaps I can put you in for more job opportunities, more internal training that is, you know, zero cost or, or low cost. Maybe I can give you another week's vacation. You know, maybe there's something else that one could do to increase what somebody gets out of the position in terms of keeping them happy, keeping them respected, you know, again, assuming they're doing a good job, but certainly a lot of people tend to focus on that number. Money is not everything. One of the things that we did once when looking at a, a business that we were buying, we purchased a business, but we also brought back the manager of that business, the, the owner of the business to be a manager at a fairly substantial salary for a fixed amount of time. What that did is it allowed the gap between what he wanted and what the company could afford for this project, what we could reasonably put into that. It came another way for us to get to that number, to close that gap to the point where it actually made sense for this guy. That's what it came down to is, is asking those questions. Well, what do you really need? Oh, this is why you're selling. 
these are what your goals are trying to come out of the other end of that. How can we help you achieve those? Well, you don't actually need the time. It's not like you've got another business that you're going on for. You have time, you have flexibility, but you need this lump of cash right now. So here's what we can do to sort of spread that out. Again, when you come to, you know, the difference between fixed and operating costs and bureaucracy and those bloody accountants do, I tell you, they mess everything up. <laughs> you can be very creative if you can expand that pie to non-financial inclusions or considerations in a negotiation. I, have you seen anything like that, Stu, in your cases, in your negotiations? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, something that I used to preach and probably still do given the opportunity, well, we'll find out in about, I don't know, a minute and a half, is that, that there's a, a fundamental misunderstanding about money and about salary where there's an assumption. I think it's, it's maybe gone away a little bit now, but certainly there was an assumption in the past that um, money was all, all that counted and that um, it was a key to motivating people giving them a, you know, a full, a fair job, et cetera, was, you know, am I getting the best salary that I should be getting? And the, the way that I ask, ask staff members to think about this would be, I'd say, okay, you are paid for the sake of, I'm going to say 30 yin yangs, whatever a yin yang might be. Would you work any harder if you were paid 40 yin yangs? And invariably an employee will turn around and say, well, I work as hard as I possibly can now because I'm committed to the company and, you know, you know, I'm here first, you know, I work hard, you know, I do the weekends and, and you go, yeah, okay, well, so stop. So let's not talk about the amount of yin yangs being motivating. It's not. When people are talking about pay rises, often what they're talking about is recognition. So there's recognition for the work that they have done. There is recognition for what they add to the business. There is recognition for the effort that they've put in. And all of those things are often best demonstrated with something other than money. And that's why you'll see, you know, some companies, um, you know, giving people a vacation literally rather than the money for a vacation or, you know, gifts or even little certificates they can put on the wall, you know, all sorts of different things. It's not always about cash. And we got to a point with, with our teams that we, we had um, a sort of automatic salary that was calculated using sort of industry averages. Um, and we would pay in, in, I think it was the top percentile um, for per role. And it was non-negotiable. <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's your salary. However, we then had you know bonus schemes where people could earn more money that was around performance uh, on appraisal and all that sort of stuff. And we tried to sort of separate the two things and say, look, if you're working for us in this role, then you're going to be in the top 10% of people working in that role because yeah, we're one of the best companies. That's, that's a given. And if you do really well, then we're going to give you a big lump of cash um, as, a, as a thank you. And it's going to come from the performance that you've demonstrated. So, you know, it paid for itself is the argument, I guess. And that in many ways, that was to remove negotiation from the, from the reward strategy, because, um, 
if you don't, then what happens is the best negotiators get the best salaries, not necessarily the best employees get the best salaries, which is fundamentally wrong. One of the worst held secrets of any company is who got the biggest raise. So as soon as you start doing that negotiation, somebody in the same job who got a lesser raise because they're lesser of a negotiator yep. is going to feel out of place, disrespected. It can become such a, such a nasty place having, particularly if you've got groups of people doing similar types of work, having a baseline and performance based pay is, is absolutely one of the best ways to go to avoid all kinds of unnecessary and potentially crippling negotiations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was, um, we, James and I would sit down, James, my business partner, we would sit down at the end of the year and often in the first few years, the sort of review time, which we were on calendar years for reasons I still don't quite remember, but we would, um, sort of sit down coming up to Christmas time, battered and bruised from having had a series of negotiations with, with people within our business, some of whom, you know, we, we had to sort of, uh, you know, discipline's the wrong word, but we were delivering them some, some fairly hard messages around performance and, and why, you know, they weren't getting a bonus or why their salaries weren't going up to the next level or whatever it might be. And also having conversations with, you know, we, we employed some really, really good negotiators, some tough people. Uh, who were used to getting their own way. And so you would get, um, as people may have gathered, I can be quite stubborn and vociferous. And so you put somebody stubborn and vociferous against me in a negotiation, it tends to get, you know, fairly stubborn and vociferous. Um, and so we would sit there bruised and go, okay, so we've, we've now spent in the last month and a half, we've spent 90 yin yangs on giving raises here and bonuses there. And what, and what we've managed to do is for want of a, a better phrase, we've managed to tick everybody off. <laughs> so from, from everybody being relatively happy, we've now spent money to make everybody unhappy. Yay, go us. Um, and that's, that's where we got to the point saying, okay, we need to, to put this to a place where salary progression is automatic, um, based around, you know, certain criteria and then performance stuff. We, we acknowledge and we admit that there is an element of this is subjective, but these are, you know, the, 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 the criteria we're using and it worked for us. We, we found that was much better. Um, I know when, the, we sold the company and those people were then subsumed into a large American corporate who worked differently. Um, I know the American corporate struggled a little bit because our staff had certain expectations about how they would be, be rewarded and it all worked out okay in the end, but, um, it was for us, it was really, really effective. And then the, when we were doing the sale, um, it was, it was that classic thing where your, the, the American negotiation team was in town for a period known to us, uh, what it was 10 days or something. And, you know, a room in a neutral venue had been, had been hired and it was right. Um, it's kind of, you know, nobody leaves until we've got this thing done and we, there were late night meetings. I remember going to the lawyers at quarter to midnight to, to scrutinize some paperwork and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I learned so much just from the whole thing. Cause this, the, their lead negotiator was doing this all the time. 
And he sat down and he said, okay, guys, right. We're here for 10 days. So we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And then on Wednesday, you are going to sell your company to me. You're going to be happy with the price that you get. I'm going to be happy with the price that I pay. And uh, we're all going to get on with our lives. And that was a brilliant tactic. Just very clever. Let's set out. This is where we're going. Not this is where we'd all like to go, blah, blah, blah. Very straight down the line. This is where we're going. And, you know, portraying that confidence that he felt there was a number and a series of other things that would work. And he was doing exactly as he suggested. He would turn around to us and say, okay, well, you know, you guys are going to be walking away from the business, but I think probably for a period of X, Y, or Z months, you need to be available to the business. And of course, we wouldn't expect that to be for free. And so immediately, James and I go, oh, that's kind of a parachute thing, isn't it? That kind of, you know, softens the, the, you know, being unemployed thing. And also for him in terms of, you know, balance sheets and year ends and, you know, moved some of the price around and all this stuff is important to corporates. It's not something that, that, that James or I would consider because we were entrepreneurs. We'd built the business with our own cash. So everything for us was cash. Now, how much is it? Uh, the whole idea of, oh, well, you know, if we can do it in this year, we can do it in that year, it won't affect stock price as much. And it'll be, blah, blah, blah. you know, may have been speaking Greek to me. I had no idea what any of that meant. <laughs> um, but, but by listening to, to what he was telling us, we could go, okay, all right. So there's probably potential to move that number if we're able to give him something on this number. And as you said, listening, 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 listening. If both sides want to do a deal and both sides listen, then you will do a deal. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. But listening, I think is, is really a good takeaway from that is just make sure you, you listen to the other part. And again, try to establish trust, you know, as some people take a negotiation as a win-lose, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. And if you look at it in terms of how do we both win and meet not just a financial objective, which is usually what negotiations are about, mm. not always, but in a large number of cases as a financial component, if you look at the total number of considerations, how can we include, be inclusive of everything that we need, non-monetary as well as monetary, and come up with a way to negotiate around the edges, all of a sudden you can get to a high trust area and come up with something that works for everybody. You know, everybody has a different set of needs, as you just said, a difference between an entrepreneur who really looks at the bank account and says, that's how I did this year. And a corporation as a shareholders and growth and, um, CapEx versus OpEx and, you know, all of those fun things that people have to deal with in the corporate jobby job world. If you can sort of see what those two things are, it, it changes the way you can approach a negotiation. And that does involve you putting yourself out there and being a little at risk as well. By developing that trust, you've got to be a little vulnerable. Here's something, here's a piece of me that I'm divulging that, you know, perhaps I, I should keep it in. If I'm going to go for a win-lose, I shouldn't tell you that. I just want to hold on to that piece of information. Sure. But if you share that, you can work around the edges to come up with a much better negotiation. And as you said, if you want to, you can make a deal. Yeah. And I mean, 
win-win is is also known, and I think more accurately is known as lose-lose. Okay, so the sign of a good deal is that we shook hands with this guy. Was Eric, his name was. <laughs> we shook hands with Eric, and he said, "I've paid you too much." And we said, "You haven't given us enough." <laughs> and he turned around and said, "Okay, well, we're both unhappy. It's a good deal." <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, there is an element of that where, particularly when you're selling a business, you you know, this is how we think you should value the business. Okay, that's fascinating. This is how we value your business. And it's a different calculation using a different number and a different multiple. So you then get into a discussion about which number should we use? You know, should it be operational contribution? Should it be profit before tax? Should it be gross revenue? You know, uh, Justin will know better than anyone which which of these numbers. And, and there's a huge uh, difference between those numbers. So if you take a number very high in the account, uh, like gross revenue, then you might be look, looking at a, a multiple of two. If you take a number like profit before tax, you might be looking at a, a number of like 10. So how those two numbers interact then comes to a big number. Being good at maths helps when you're doing negotiations so that you can quickly catch up with what's being suggested, you know, in your head. But, um, that sort of building trust exercise we managed to achieve with with Eric by going through each other's calculations and saying, okay, so you want to work from this number and that multiple. Why would that be? And he would explain where he was coming from from a corporate point of view, mostly in Greek. You know, we go, I don't know what I was talking about, but okay. And then we would go through the same process from our side where he would say, okay, so why is that number the one that you feel should be worked around? And for us, it would be because, you know, we, we were making the argument that a lot of the cost, we were being bought by a company that we were an agent of. So mm. there was a, a degree of cost that was just going to be absorbed. It wasn't going to be uh, actually an additional cost to the business. And therefore, we thought you couldn't deduct it from the price. And there's all of that toing and froing going on. But what's important is that you're building an understanding of each other. And there was a really tough time in, in that negotiation where we'd reach an Nampas and um, my, my friend, a business partner, James, is incredibly stubborn. He makes me look, he makes me look like the, the sort of generous one. And he had dug his heels in and he's, uh, he's English and aristocratic. And he'd set his jaw, I could see. And I was like, <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Um, and the American team across the other side uh, you know, they've seen this stuff before, but they were, you know, you, you're asking us to go somewhere we can't go. We don't have the, the ability to go there. And, you know, were they, was that a, a tactic? Were they saying that because they felt they could win? Who knows? And the, the view I took was, all right, okay, I'm listening here. And they're telling me they can't make that happen. And so we would chip around a little bit and eventually the head negotiator caught me in one of the breaks, took me aside and said, look, I need you to work with me here. I can give you something on this, but you've got to get him, <laughs> my business partner, to move on that. And I, I was able to do it, not because I suddenly became a secret agent, but because I, I could go to my business partner and say, look, he's reaching out. He's saying he can help us around here and help us around. And the skill of my negotiating tactics there uh, to be honest, negotiating with the American was a piece of cake. Negotiating with my business partner, that was hard. Oh, I can imagine. Just getting him to move. And the way I did it was the way that most people do it. 
make it sound as though you're giving the guy what he wants. Just don't give it to him. <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was brilliant. I think everybody played their part. And the important thing was just building that trust, listening to what the other people could and couldn't move on. And at the end of the day, realizing that the best deal was the deal that you did. There's no point in punishing us and saying, well, could I have got 20 more yin-yangs? Or could I have paid 50 yin-yangs less? Who cares? You didn't. You got to a point where they were unhappy, you were unhappy, and you shook hands. Perfect. Don't, in any negotiation, whether that be a salary thing, you, don't, you should never walk out of a, a salary review. Oh, should I have pushed for more? <laughs> no. It's funny, I'm just thinking about this uh, with the year that we had uh, selling and buying a house and the temptation to look back at that and go, well, did I get a good deal here? Did I get a good deal here? At the end of the day, I sold my house during a rough COVID time for us over here where the last thing I wanted was not having open houses and people traipsing through bringing, you know, gosh knows what at that point because our numbers were pretty high i put a price on that that i was willing to accept and had the buyers come in and, and give me a lower price but that lower price involved them never setting foot in the house until after the deal was done it was actually part of the condition was hey we'll come and take a look around your house uh at, before we sign off on the final deal and that had a, it, it had a small price. It was not, or it was non-zero, but it was a price that I was very comfortable. Again, looking at that whole knowing what your takeaway price is. And same thing when we bought. What are the criteria? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to go for for this? Looking at my options and really understanding that ahead of time. Gave me an incredible amount of leverage. And it gave me a deal that I've never looked back and questioned because it was within my parameters. Here's what I had established as parameters. You know, maybe I didn't get the 10% raise, maybe I only got the 5%, maybe I didn't get a raise, but I've got an extra week's vacation. That has value, and knowing what your, your walk away is before you get into any negotiation helps you feel good about it at the end of it. And I'm even gonna throw that away, that was actually gonna be my takeaway, Stu. <laughs> know your partner, know your best alternative, to a negotiated agreement, which means before you start any negotiation, think about it. Think about what you really, really want. Not just the one 5%, 10% number that you're fixated on, but look at all of the situations. As Stu said, do your research, research, and research. Yeah. Stu, what's your takeaway? Never, ever, ever burn bridges. Oh, where were you 30 years ago, my friend? <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised how often you need a bridge. The, the reality for most of us is that we work in a certain sector or a certain skill. So you, know, you might be an accountant, you might be a, an operations person, you might be a salesperson. I guarantee you, you'd be surprised how many people you bump into from your previous career as things go on. And there's... Sometimes things don't work out. I've been fired from jobs. One of the people who sat in and fired me from uh, my job in Budapest was James, who became my business partner. Ooh. 
a few years later. Now, don't get me wrong, there was a bottle of scotch put on a table and he and I drank it until we'd <laughs> sorted out our differences. <laughs> we never burnt bridges. He, he was acting as he felt was appropriate. I was acting as I felt was appropriate. Mistakes were made by one side and the other. But at no point did we burn bridges. Don't get me wrong. We, we, you know, we, we had set twos, we had arguments, we had conflicts that we, you know, we talked about in the last episode, but uh, don't burn your bridges. You don't need to. Don't let these things, negotiations, whether they be around salary or buying a company or selling a company or around the price you can charge if you're a freelancer, any of that. Negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Either a deal gets done or it doesn't. In either event, it's not the end of the world. There's always another deal. And always try and leave on on happy terms. So when I'm negotiating with people, um, you know, for freelance work, there are lots of people who say, oh, you're too expensive. Okay. I, I hear where you're coming from. I talk to them. I listen to them, find out whether this is a negotiation or whether I am just not the right person for, for the job. Um, one of my clients has got the best nickname ever. Okay. This, this is going to be my revised takeaway. All right. My, my nickname, uh, he calls me Rhino. Rhino. Yeah. Thick skinned and charges a lot. Oh, I love that. That's great. And you know, that I, I, I took that as a, as a compliment because, you know, when I turn around to people and give them my daily rate for some people, they go, you're kidding. I'm no, well, how could you charge that much? Because I am happen to be in a very specialized niche. There aren't many people that do what I do. And frankly, I'm really, really good at it. So that's what it costs. And then I give them assurances about how things will work out. But you know, for some people they just go, well, that's way too much. And I, okay, I understand that. And I think they're, they're negotiating. They're hoping that I might half my, my, my rate and I don't, um, I'll say, look, that's fine. It's okay. You, you know, if, if there's a way that I could do less for you, take less time and therefore charge you less, um, I'm more than happy to explore that. But if you need me to do X, Y, and Z, it's going to take me that sort of time. And therefore it's going to cost that sort of money. And if, if I'm not the right guy, then maybe I can point you in the direction of people that can help and, and shake hands and. I can think of two clients that have turned me down and, and, and now work with me and I haven't moved the price. They've, you know, their situation has changed or they've perceived that actually I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't just making stuff up. So, um, yeah, never, ever burn bridges. Don't let it get personal. There's my take. Ah, fantastic stuff, Stu. Wow. All right. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, you can find me at stuartlennon.com. Um, you can find me at nerosnotes.co.uk. You can also, if you like, find me at limeconsulting.com, where I don't think my daily rate is published, but you'll get an idea. <laughs> and on Twitter, you can find me at Stu Lennon. What about you, Justin? Where can people find you? You can find me at justintwyford.com. You can also find my stationary stuff, writeexperience.com. And I'm JJ Twyford on Twitter because somebody had my name and won't give it up to me. But that's okay. It is what it is. If you have comments about the show, uh, would like to give us your feedback or just generally complain at us for something, stationaryjacent at gmail.com. Please like and review us on your podcast, Catcher of Choice. We really do appreciate your recommendations to your friends and colleagues. It helps. It makes a difference. We see the listening numbers and they're going up every time, which is an incentive for us to keep doing it. Besides the fact we just enjoy chatting once a week.
our next topic, we're going to go back to relationships in the workplace and dig a little deeper on that, maybe put a practical angle on it. So I think next week will be an interesting one as well. Until then, goodbye and stay productive. Yes, us.